Austin mentioned that we are just a couple weeks away from the launch of our 9.30 service. And so let me just make two things, uh, kind of uh, put two things on your radar, rather. Number one is that there's no amount of like marketing, billboards, advertising dollars that, that is better than the power of your just sharing that news, right? So if you, if you know someone that's looking for uh, a place to gather and grow this holiday season, like, like, like just by all means, feel free to just understand that like you play a role in sharing that word. Um, so the 9.30 hour launching in a couple weeks, feel free to invite someone to that or let someone know about that, even if you're going to sleep in and still come at 11 a.m. Um, the second thing to just let you know is that like that really is uh, collectively not three or four of us that get paid to like you know, put things together around here, you know, but rather it's a collection of us that that call the foundry their home saying, hey, how do we create space um, and our own schedules to sort of make that opportunity available to others. And so while I know that some of us will appreciate the convenience of, hey, I'd like to go early this week, late this week, there's a home game, is there not a home game? Really what we want to invite you to if the, the foundry is your home church is, is really, to, or if you're looking for a place to sort of jump in, is to say, hey, uh, there are various teams and groups that will make two gatherings a reality around here um, with their hospitality, with the way they care for kids, with the way that they um, make the magic happen behind the board, the things they do here on stage and more. And if you want to be part of that, it, 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 there really is a way to do that. You, you can make a difference around here just and, and connect with people and have fun doing it. So um, if you go to the Connect page by that QR code or at foundrybaltimore.com connect, there's a two services tab. And, and as you click on that, that will lead you to some of those pathways. All right. So, all right. A couple weeks ago, when it was like warm outside, um, we took our dog for a walk. Now, my children have aged out of the, lo the local youth soccer league, or at least like they no longer are interested in playing in the local youth soccer league. But, but one of the things I missed about the Saturdays at Latrobe is that you just get to see a lot of people over the course of that morning. And so we set the trajectory walking Tila towards Latrobe Park in the hopes that we would get to see some, some friends and people that we knew. And so I had every intention, this detail matters, because I had every intention of extroverting so hard, right? Like, I knew that's what the purpose of this walk was. So as I make my way to, uh, almost to Latrobe, much to my surprise, I almost just completely blow off someone that I really would want to talk to. And it was sort of them going like, oh, hey, Scott. That was like, oh, oh, that, that was you. Like, oh, hey, man, like, what's up? And the reason, reason for that was because the sun was on my eyes. There's a dog pulling me every which way because she's more of an extrovert than all of us. And more than any of that, like, I was wearing sunglasses that were, that were not, I am just like, they were like my, my backup sunglasses, the ones that, like, I, when I leave sunglasses somewhere, I'm not sad about. So, like, but they had, like, a weird polarization lens. And so, so here's the deal. Here's the deal with this. Like, the, the thing I intended to do was to walk toward the park, be friendly, engage, and, like, interact with people that I don't get to see as frequently as I, as I want to. But, but the circumstances the lenses, and the other things kind of pulling at my attention disrupted me from, that, from that, that conviction that I had. 
So this, this idea of the thing beneath the thing has been to say that the triggers that you experience, the T, the hideouts that you run to, <laughs> the insecurities that you face, and the narratives that you absorb and, and use to like sort of process the world and navigate it, have the ability to rob you of aiming to live out the convictions that you actually have. That the, that the circumstances therein, the, the, the lenses with which you see things, like all that stuff has the ability, and you don't even have to be a follower of Jesus, I think, to really fully understand this like, like concept. Like this is not an overtly Christian principle that we're talking about today. We'll get to that in a minute. To, to, to just keep us distracted and confused in, in the things that are going on in our story. And what we wanted to pay attention to in this series is how those things are disrupted and addressed by the concept of grace, which is where we're going to close today and how we're going to close our series. And I think when I say that into a microphone, it sounds like a weird Jesus juke. It sounds like this conditioned response that you're, of things you're supposed to say and talk about at church. Grace. Ah, grace. I would expect someone like you, Scott Ann Caro, if you know my name, right, to, to talk about things like grace. That's probably something you guys talk about around here. But I'm not religious. And I would disagree with you. Because I think we are very religious, in fact, about how we, how we live in response to the triggers that happen around us. I think we're very religious in response to the frequency and the elevation of particular hideouts that we use to numb or to medicate ourselves when things don't go our way. I think, I think we worship at the altar of our insecurities. Some of us have based our entire decisions or lack of decisions on this elevation of our insecurity. And certainly all of us have categorized the in crowd and the out crowd based on narratives. See, I think we're quite comfortable being quite religious, even if we wouldn't consider ourselves a church person. And so when this churchy word grace shows up and disrupts these other things, it, it, it reminds me of the words of Eugene Peterson in the message paraphrase. He says in Matthew chapter 11, are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me, get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. And what a beautiful invitation there at the end, huh? To live freely and rightly. This paraphrase of the words of Jesus. The idea of grace. Is, is, a, is a word that we've heard and something that we know all too well is that some of the people who say it most frequently represent it least well, shall we say, right? And so what do we make of this thing, this thing that is a distinctive of the Christian tradition, this thing that is the distinctive unifying factor of, of why we gather at the table, this thing that when we say, hey, all roads kind of lead to the same place, this word grace like interrupts that and says, well, hold on, wait a minute. Not all worldviews and paths like cling to the idea of this word grace. 
And so how do we begin to understand it? How do we begin to allow it to speak to the triggers, the hideouts, the insecurities, and the narratives that we face? And, 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 then, and then what does that mean for our stories today? That's what we want to look at as we conclude this series. And I think if you, if you are like me and grace just feels like a church word, then you might fall into the trap that I know that I fall into even now, which is, I think, the fundamental frustration that a lot of us have with people that say they're grace-filled people, and, and maybe even for yourself, when you want to be graceful but struggle to. And it's that we treat grace kind of like an app. I mean, it's like Harris, Tater, it's DoorDash. We got a new giant now, so I got to say giant. The giant app, you know, the beauty of an app is that this morning you can sit here and pretend to be present and actually be somewhere else entirely. Like you can be building your grocery list. You can be checking scores. You can be like, man, the World Cup started today. How's that first half going? Like, like I don't know if that's a beautiful thing, but it's at least a thing, right? Because, because on your smartphone, there's a series of apps or applications that, uh, that you can interact with, right? So if you need to figure out where to have food delivered and who's delivering on Sundays, you can pull up that DoorDash app and have a look, right? You use it when you need it. And there's, and there's really, for a lot of us in this room, sort of that's a transactional relationship with grace. I have a difficult meeting this week, and so I'm going to need to pull up the grace app and hope that that provides the right filter to not get fired, Right? I need to pull up the Grace app because Thanksgiving is coming and we're going to start fighting as soon as the, the vegetable tray is passed. I need the Grace app because it was Saturday night and I had a really bad Saturday night. I fell back into some things I don't want to be doing anymore and it's Sunday morning and I feel shame. I mean, I need this Grace app. And that's how a lot of us interact with this idea of grace. We pull it up when we need it. But the truth of the scriptures and the claim of the scriptures is that grace operates a lot less like an app and a lot more like an operating system. Like, like, like that phone that, that you use to order lunch and check the scores, like it has an operating system attached to it, right? The, the most clever and well-designed app designer that does not match said app to a particular operating system we'll find frustration making those things work with each other. And, and the reality is when we see grace presented in the scriptures, we don't just see sort of this like get out of your nonsensical behavior free card. We see an entire operating system offered and ushered in by the goodness and mercy of Jesus to rescue a people who are prone to elevate people and elevate themselves and live through their own lenses and, and to run to their hideouts and to live in their insecurities and to categorize based on narratives. This is expressed pretty well by, by a guy we know as Paul and often talk about around here as Paul who wrote a good bit of the New Testament. But, but if you were in his world at his time, you would have known him at one point as Saul of Tarsus. And of course, Saul of Tarsus, um, you know, if he had never had a conversion experience, may have gone on to become one of the most preeminent or famous, you know, Jewish thinkers and authors over the course of history and time. Because he was studying, he was zealous, he was passionate, he was infamous in the sense that he really loved like punishing the people that did not align with his worldview. And then he has this, this, this transformational encounter 
with the very Jesus that he's trying to stamp out. The very Jesus who as a rabbi is teaching the idea of the kingdom of God and grace and its accessibility and, and, and Saul of Tarsus just thinks this is gross. And so with a terroristic bend to him is trying to like get rid of this dude suddenly encounters a vision of the risen Jesus, it, it knocks him on his rear end. It, it transforms his understanding of what it is he's understood up to this point, the kingdom of, of Jesus' world to be. You can read that story recorded in Acts chapter 8 and 9 from the perspective of Luke, but then in kind of the, the first person account that Luke, give, I mean, that, uh, that Luke you know, records as Paul's first person account in Acts 22 and in 26, respectively. And so we learn for this, this moment that, that but Paul has now got a completely different lens by which he is seeing himself, which he's seeing God, and which he's seeing others. He talks about this in his first letter to a guy named Timothy, who's a mentee of sorts and is pastoring a church in, a, in, a, in an urban center. And this is what he says to his mentee as he's had years now at this point to think and reflect on the grace and mercy of Jesus taking root in his life, not just as a one-time encounter, but a completely different paradigm by which to understand his story, a completely different way to see the person he used to be versus the person that God calls him to be today. He says this in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. He says, I thank Christ, Jesus our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord Jesus was poured on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. What you get here when you look at Paul's words is not just a guy who had a rough Saturday night or a guy who had a little bit of road rage when somebody did something really ridiculous in front of him or didn't, like some Baltimoreans believe you should, immediately accelerate to 60 miles an hour when the light turns green and express themselves in kind. There's a the completely different way Paul is understanding his previous actions. What he once believed to be the way that you were the, the arbiter of truth. To, to fancy himself as a man of esteemed resume is now to say, when I look at this operating system take root in my story, what I once believed was me being right about everything, I now see as me being a blasphemer. What I saw was me vehemently defending the, the faith that I had and, and the way I understood God is now me humbly acknowledging that my convictions and the way I acted on them made me a violent person, an angry and unmerciful person until this risen Jesus demonstrated to me a picture of grace. And I don't know what we agree on in this room, but I will say this, like each of us in this room have different ways in which we're trying to sort of justify ourselves, justify our standing, and make sure we're like right in the world, right? You, you, have, you have something that when you hear it, you react to it, and you're like, that's not the way the world works. 
And behind that is some sort of way in which you justify yourself. My, my academics, my, my, my relationships, my desires, whatever, and whatever it might be. But, but what, what Paul is saying here is the thing that was transformational to him was when he began to see that there was not just this, this God he could call up on when, when he didn't get it right, but a completely different way to understand how he is made right, how his convictions are formed, and, and, and how he is to view even the people that vehemently disagree with how he thinks the world should work. It's the grace and mercy of of Jesus who destroyed that understanding of the system of like climb your ladder and live your best life and, 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 and demonstrate to everyone else how good you are because at the end of the day, what did Jesus still know about Paul? Behind all of that posturing, behind all of that was an inner rot. A violent man, an unmerciful man until he encountered the grace and mercy of Jesus and let it actually speak to his story, until he let that be installed as an operating system, not just something he peripherally pulled up when he had a rough Saturday night. There's a, there's a documentary that a guy named Bill Moyers did a few years ago for PBS about the song Amazing Grace. And, uh, and he, you know, getting, and of course, like, you know, it, we don't sing Amazing Grace and people don't ask for it to be played on bagpipes at funerals because it's, it's a banger. You know, like, that's what the kids are saying, friends. The kids are calling it a banger. Um, you know, we can find something that Dua Lipa has put together today that may, that may be more catchy in the, in the ears. But there's something powerful about the song Amazing Grace, isn't there? Bill Moyers wanted to get to the bottom of that. And so this 10-minute segment I watched this week was really interesting. He's, he's talking to Johnny Cash. Johnny Cash, the, the country music legend, the, the, one of the, amongst those last week that Austin would tell you he builds narratives around because he's not a country music fan, right? But, but like Johnny Cash talking about the song Amazing Grace and why he plays it at shows amongst a whole set of songs that otherwise don't always reflect grace and mercy, right? Like he wrote, you know, Outlaw Country, right, was kind of his genre. And he said, you know, when I, when I think about that song, I think about the reality of my mom and myself trying to recover from the pain and the brokenness of the death of my brother on the farm. And for all of the moments where we didn't have the verbiage to understand and articulate how we felt and how deep our grief was, we could sing that song together and be unified in the idea that like something bigger than us is walking with us through the valley of the shadow of death. And then he switches over, the, the, the documentarian does, to San Quentin Prison, which if you don't know, is a place where Johnny Cash recorded several albums, this maximum security prison. And if you're thinking about a list of songs the inmates at a maximum security prison might want to play, you might think about a whole lot of songs about crime and carousing and cutting up, which Johnny Cash is a plethora of. But the song that resonated in that room, according to these inmates, was when Johnny Cash breaks down and sings Amazing Grace. It says one man who was an inmate, a guy named David Allen Coe, I've been a deacon, a churchman, 
but I've never known grace until I ended up in a place like this. This is reference to San Quentin prison. What's, what's he pointing to? What's David Allen Coe pointing to? What's Johnny Cash pointing to? The idea that this idea of grace as an operating system moves us out of ourselves. It's to say the way we find comfort, the way we find hope is, is by going, man, it's, this is good news, not bad news. That, hey, it's just not on you to figure out how to get over all by yourself the deepest and hardest parts of your story. Good luck with that. Nor, nor does the world work when you, you just talk about grace as some kind of transaction that exists in the world like one would as they're shaking hands at the door or saying good sermon pastor on the way out, but living in a completely different alternative life. But when you see that the grace and mercy of Jesus speaks to the core of who you are, like Mr. Coe would say, and you have nothing left, <laughs> You're stuck between cement and metal and steel and you're sentenced and you realize it's the grace and mercy of another that is the building block of what a new story could look like. And so, so the idea of the scriptures is to let grace find us, let it arrive in our presence and, and draw us out from a world where we're just busy building our own narratives and, and worshiping our insecurities with the attention that we give them or, or escaping from, from all of the difficult things that go on in our story with hideouts where we look publicly like everything's perfect and pretty, but behind the scenes, everything's falling apart. And when we do that, we can begin to let the G in this acronym, GRACE, begin to speak to the triggers, the hideouts, the insecurities, and the narratives. What I think is so interesting about this idea of grace that Paul offers is is that it's not a one-off. There's a verse we've used several times. I won't refer back to it a whole lot this, just for the sake of time. But like in Romans 7, which is this, this theological treatise Paul writes about the idea of grace. There's a thing that we've shared a couple weeks that he said, which is that, which is that there are things in Paul's life that he, he knows he's supposed to do. He knows they're the right thing to do, but, but, the, old, but the old ways of thinking are still talking. <laughs> You know, there's some things that need, if we use the, the tech language, an update or compatibility check. And, and, by, and then by that same account, there's things that he, he knows he shouldn't be doing, but he does them anyway. And the invitation of, of Paul, and you can see it in his story, is like, Paul doesn't go from being this zealot, pseudo-terrorist, arrogant in his own worldview to just sort of a docile and quiet, humble, behind-the-scenes guy. What you begin to see in his story, if you read his works, is how the narratives he's built are transformed. Like the guy who was the king of like, wait, you, 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 there are people that don't belong in the kingdom of God, is the guy that, that all, all about is in the book of Acts is all about like, hey, Jews and Gentiles are coming together and that's a thing now. We're going to fight for that. That's a submission of a narrative. That's, that's, a, that's, that's operating in a different, you know, it's his, his insecurity or security in terms of like how he puts confidence in his story is transformed. And I share this with you just to sort of say 
again, a transactional relationship with grace is like, hey, just let me pick this up once or twice a year when I fall on my face. But, but the, that part can actually, right, if we're, if we're if we frame this, I'm going to frame this correctly, that part can actually feel really comforting to us. There's going to be two or three times a year, maybe more, where just you're going to need to come into this room or find a spot and just, I just need the grace and mercy of Jesus to wash over something foolish I said or terrible I did or frustration that I feel to meet me. But the, but the idea of spiritual formation is to also let these things afflict our comforts to also let these things afflict the parts of our story where we once identified ourselves in this particular way. We're now saying, in light of this grace and mercy, I, I need to be moving in a different direction because this grace is informing my operating system now. It changes the, maybe even how I process those triggers or how I justify them. It, it transforms the, the way in which I, I, I hide out or don't hide out. It, it speaks to me about my insecurities, and it certainly has the ability to challenge the narratives with which I've used to sort of navigate and other you know, the funny thing about the lack of grace is that the lack of grace can show up if you've grown up in your life in proximity to church or if you've grown up in a house where everyone's an atheist but has virtues about how the world works. There's a lot, there, there can be ungrace in either of those places, right? Like, like we have all of these virtues and everyone that doesn't ascribe to these virtues is just stupid and uninformed. Like that conviction exists in conservative circles and liberal circles and church circles and unchurched circles. Philip Yancey, the author, grew up in a, in a, a fundamentalist times 10 religious upbringing that he talks a lot about in a memoir called Where the Light Fell that I would highly commend to you. But he talks about this story unwinding in his book called What's So Amazing About Grace. He says this, Grace comes free of charge to people who do not deserve it, and I am one of those people. I think back to who I was, resentful, wound tight with anger, a single hardened link in a long chain of ungrace learned from my family and church. And now I'm trying my own way to small, in a small way to pipe the tune of grace. I do so because I know more surely than I know anything that any pang of healing or forgiveness or goodness I have ever felt comes solely from the grace of God. I yearn for the church to become a nourishing culture of grace. When we talk about the idea of spiritual formation, when we talk about the, the ideas and images and information we absorb and process, I think that phrase, that tail end phrase, a nourishing culture of that grace letting the grace and mercy of Jesus be that nourishing culture that speaks to our hideouts, that speaks to our triggers, that speaks to our insecurities, and speaks to our narratives, right? It, for me, it shaped this, like, this, this, this inner perfectionist that, that hates to fail, but, but is actually, you know, like on a resourceful day, it's because I want to help the world. And the other day, it's like, I don't want to look stupid. Grace speaks to that narrative, a nourishing culture of grace speaks to the resourceful and unresourceful expressions of those narratives. And when we do that, when we create that nourishing culture, what we learn is that grace is something to fathom rather than exploit. Like one of the frustrations about grace from people that like to use the word 
but treat it more like an app is like, well, you can't take advantage of God's grace. Like don't, and, and, and truthfully, right? Like didn't, didn't you have that thought in high school if you grew up in church? Like, like, wait, so if God will just forgive me, I should just do whatever I want today. <laughs> I should say whatever I want. I should lie to whoever I feel like lying to. I should, I should do any of this because, because Sunday's coming and I can say, I'm sorry, God. <laughs> I thought I had solved that equation when I was like 17 years old. I was like two years into following Jesus. And I was like, wait a second. Wait a second. <laughs> I, I did not have the equation solved. I think something I've learned over the course of many years, right, is that grace, this kind of grace is something to fathom, not something to exploit. Paul says, should we go on sinning so that grace would increase? By no means, right? And he goes on to talk further about that. What is he, what is he saying? Like, like the way that we experience grace in our story is not by figuring out how we can exploit it this week to sort of get off on good behavior, but rather to say, man, if I really drink in and I really receive like how abounding the grace and mercy of Jesus is to, to extend a spot at the table to someone like me, then the last thing I want to do is exploit that invitation. The last thing I want to do is, is, is get caught up in my lesser ways of thinking about the world. And the journey for us as followers of Jesus, these, these last two, the, the, the encounter, yes, that Paul has, but these other two things I'm talking about are more of that journey of like, how does grace remain amazing in our journey over the course of many years and many turns and many circumstances? And as Paul will go on to say in these final two verses before he changes the concept and leads to a charge in 1 Timothy, he he, he says that this grace and, and living out that journey is one of the ways that God will tell God's story to the world. He says this, for that reason, the idea that Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst, for that reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. The thing I'm coming to learn about grace, even in this part of my story, is, is that my behaviors, though I want to be holy, though I want to live in response to God's mercy and goodness, that the, that the centerpiece of like making an impact in everyone else's life is not if everyone's just like, Scotty and Kara was awesome, watch him go. But if my life can be a testimony, if our lives can be a testimony on our block, to our, our workplaces, to our families, uh, like the, of, of, of the reality of, of the way in which Christ is demonstrating love and mercy to the world is the way that it's working out and, and shaping out and shaking out in your story, right? That, that it's less about a speech that you've rehearsed and more about the way that you are attempting to process and live out this hope in real time. The, the truth of the matter, right, is that that doesn't mean that we 
we always get along with everybody. It doesn't mean that we don't speak truth in difficult conversations and situations. It doesn't mean that anything goes and everyone just kind of live their own story and live their truth. It doesn't mean those things, but, but, but the way in which we carry out convictions, the way we carry out conflict, the way we carry out our own guilt, the way we walk out the, the insecurities that we face are colored and shaped and, and lived out tangibly by the way in which we understand grace applying to our story and, and whether you believe it to be true or not, I mean, we just know that what, we, what doesn't get processed gets projected everywhere you go, right? Easy to see in someone else, hard to see in you. What would it look like for the grace and mercy of Jesus to be so, to so, so interactive in your story that it's beginning to spill out into the relationships you value most, both in invitation and in challenge. But the foundation of that is the humility and the grace that comes from, from understanding this operating system of grace. And so this morning, we, I just want to move us to a time before we, we talk, before talk further on this topic where we just kind of slow ourselves down um, Maybe close our eyes or whatever you need to, do, whether it's focusing on the screen or listening to the words, but really just begin to understand how we are today in this moment, not 30 years ago, not last year at camp, not last week when you, you had a rough day, but just like this, in this moment, available to us, the grace and mercy of Jesus, how that might interact with our story today. So let's, let's take a moment and, uh, and practice the awareness of grace in our story. Let's take a moment to reflect on grace. Where have you treated grace like an app? like to treat grace as an operating system. Who is someone you need to see through the lens of grace? used grace.
we'll move to communion in just a moment where we're reminded that, that our space at this table is received, not achieved. And I was walking that same dog I talked about in my opening story not long ago on a sunny day, but not the same day. It's the one I referenced earlier. We were throwing a Frisbee, and my dog got very, very confused. She's normally quite astute with the Frisbee, but not this day. Because she was chasing the shadow. As I throw the Frisbee, she made a beeline for the shadow that was cast by the Frisbee rather than the Frisbee. And so as you can imagine, that was a frustrating game for a dog. (laughs) But it's also a frustrating game you and I play all the time. Chasing the shadows of grace when the substance is in front of us and available to us. Communion is this moment where we're reminded of the substance of grace the broken body and presence of Jesus in this broken world (laughs) and the sacrificial love of God poured out on our behalf. May receiving this grace and this reminder of that grace at one of our four stations this morning, all of which are gluten-free, be a reminder to not settle for the shadows when the substance is available. God, would you help us this morning? I know I've followed you for many years with varying degrees of fire, zeal, and passion, varying high tides and low tides. And this grace is a mystery to me. It confounds me, the depths of it. And what it calls me to. Lord, as we receive this morning your, your tangible picture of grace and mercy on display, may the mystery of your grace revealed in Jesus challenge and comfort us. In the name of Jesus, we pray.